Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. Good morning. Amen. I can't wait for some testimonies of healing, right? Yes. As many of us have mentioned already, Matthew, it is a beautiful, hot summer day. The sun is shining, and you know, it's the beginning of the summer, so there's an atmosphere of possibility, right? The whole summer stands before us. I wonder what you are expecting from the summer. Maybe some rest, some fun, some easy, slow days, hopefully, some time to recharge. And I do hope we all get lots of that this summer. But let's be real. You know I like to keep it real. Often we put expectations on the summer and on our vacations that they just cannot live up to. Right? It's like, you know, we're dragging along here at the end. I know the feeling. We're so like overworked and tired. And it's like, I just got to get to the vacation. And then it's going to be fine, you know. But really... You go on vacation, and there's some bickering with your spouse. You, maybe you got some kids. You know, just don't say vacation if you have kids. You're going on a trip, right? Like, it's not a vacation. It's a trip, right? Because, you know, if you've got kids, it's hard to fully rest, right? And then after this vacation, afterward, we return to the same daily grind that put us in that bad place to begin with. You know, this place, oh, vacation. Like, we return to that. And then we look forward to next summer. Oh, no. Did I just burst the summer Sunday bubble? <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I'm going to tell you why I did that, okay? It's because I'm speaking to you from Ecclesiastes this morning. Uh, Susan had one verse reference from Ecclesiastes in our previous Sunday gathering, and boy, I got stuck in that book, uh, really digging to get at the essence of it. So you can go ahead and turn there. We're going to hang out in chapters one and two quite a bit. Uh, the references will be on the screen, but it's, it's a lot, and Ebby is awesome on the computer, but I don't know if he's going to be able to keep up or not. You can do it, Ebby. <laughs> Uh, but it would be good if you can turn in your Bibles. It's a very short book, so you can miss it. So, turn right to the middle of your Bible. You'll likely land in Psalms. And then turn a little bit. You'll find Proverbs. And then right after that, that's Ecclesiastes. Uh, you also you know, have a table of contents in your Bible. No shame. No shame if you need to look up Ecclesiastes in the table of contents. <clears throat> So we're going to turn there. Most of Ecclesiastes is written in the voice of a teacher or a preacher, your translation might have. Possibly it was King Solomon. If not Solomon, it was someone writing in the style of kingly wisdom. And we're going to see what this book has to say about our life cycles of work and pleasure. Did you find it yet? Okay. Chapter 1, verse 1. 
The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Thanks. So we can stop right there, actually. This doesn't sound to many of us like the Bible usually sounds, right? Um, I actually mentioned at work this last week that I was preaching. You know, my coworkers think that's very exotic, you know. Uh, and uh, one of my coworkers there said, oh, okay, you're going to preach. I said, yeah, you know what? I'm actually preaching out of this book, Ecclesiastes. You might know it. Um, it's the one that starts with everything is meaningless. And he says, oh, actually, you know, I'm an atheist, but I can approve of that message. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> um, and I, I said, yeah, I thought you might, actually. But let me, let me tell you a little more. And we had an interesting conversation after that. Um, but it's, it's very valid to ask, what is this even doing here? Uh, Ebby, did you get that photo uh, that I wanted to show? No, okay, never mind. It was just for a little comic relief. That's okay. Uh, Ecclesiastes, you need to know before we go any further, serves a negative function in the wisdom literature. So it actually wants to burst your bubble, right? So if somewhere at the end of this you're feeling a little bit deflated, your bubble has been burst, then that's great. That means Ecclesiastes is doing what it wants to do. But it's not going to leave you there, and I'm not going to leave you there either, deflated and forsaken, right? But we do have to go down before we can go up. Or put it this way, to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. Right. So the word for meaningless here, meaningless, you might have a different translation in your Bible. It's a bit tricky to uh, translate, but the Hebrew word is hevel, hevel. It's used, I think, over 40 times in this book. It literally means smoke or vapor, and so it's a metaphor here. It's like um, either it means something temporary or fleeting, or it's something that's real, but you can't grasp it, right? That's what smoke is. Um, when I met Adam about 13 years ago now, he smoked cigarettes, and he could make perfect smoke o's with his cigarette smoke. Poof, poof, little circles. Um, and they were there, you know, it was a real circle, but it just took a, a moment and poof, it would disappear. Or I would put my finger through it, pop the, pop the ring. That's hevel. It's temporary. You can't grasp it, right? Um, it sometimes in this book means pointless or in vain or even absurd. Hevel. Hevel. And the, the teacher here says everything on, in this life is touched by hevel. There isn't one aspect that isn't, that, or that doesn't feel frustratingly futile. It's empty, it's pointless, it's absurd. So let's keep going. Verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Oh, we did have the picture there. <laughs> it's okay. We, you can, yeah, you can kind of see there. <laughs> we can skip it. It's all right, Abby. Thank you. <laughs> what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? 
What do you gain from all that work just to get to a vacation? Right? You get a paycheck, of course, but he's after something else. Are you permanently better off from all your toiling? Under the sun. That's another key phrase I want you to look at and remember. Under the sun. This is a hint about the teacher's perspective. It means on earth as it is now, after Eden and before new creation. So everything under the sun is hevel. It's absurd. It's pointless. What do we permanently gain? And to illustrate this point, throughout this book, he's exploring everything that ordinary people tend to use to make meaning in their life. Work, pleasure, wisdom, knowledge. And he then shows how empty it is. And he's not just speaking from theory, actually. He's, he's got a bit of a science, scientific mind. I mean, he's, he's coming at this like it's an experiment. And he's like, okay, I'm going to wring out everything from this life that's possible to wring out. And I'm going to see what my findings are. And he's told us what his findings are right here. It's hevel. <laughs> it's absurd. It's, it's meaningless. Right? It's, it's smoke. I can't... I can't <clears throat> I can't get it. He takes, it's like he's taking human self-sufficiency all the way to its end. And man, he wants you to feel it. He wants you to feel hopeless for a little bit. He keeps going, verse 4. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets, hurries back to where it rises, the wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. Like he's using the repetitive nature of the natural world as a metaphor. There are streams flowing in the ocean, but it never gets full. It's like people are working super hard all the time, but nothing really changes, really, permanently. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Harry's getting at this insatiable desire that's innate in us for more. And it's really hard to think of a better illustration for this verse than our current information age and our media intake. Matthew mentioned just now the, the device that we carry around. Right? We're constantly listening to something or looking at something. At this point, it is an act of resistance right? to put your phone down. It's like, I'm going to stand up to this and say, no, I'm going to put my phone, I'm going to turn it off. Whoa. <laughs> Don't this airplane mode. Like, no, I'm going to turn it off and put it in a box. Like, that is the most resistant culturally weird things you can do at this point. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Of course, the internet and our phones did not invent that desire, right? This guy knows about it a couple thousand more, more, 2,500 years ago. It just highlighted it, right? And the author, he's like, it's so tiring, isn't it? It's wearisome. I've had that experience on my phone. Like, what am I doing? Like, oh, get this thing away from me. 
right? There's never an end. It's the next thing and the next thing. His point is we never really find satisfaction and fulfillment. We never fully arrive. To uh, Another illustration. Are, are there any American football fans? Hey, I figured there were a few. And I know you didn't expect a football illustration from me, okay? But I'm going to pull one out here. <clears throat> so quarterback Tom Brady... Way back in 2005, this was after his third Super Bowl win, he said in an interview, it's a kind of astonishing interview, he said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings, shows that he's won three times, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life, but me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And, you know, now, that was 2005. Now he's got six or seven rings, something like seven. Seven, very important, seven. Um, but I bet you they still haven't added up to something greater. I guarantee you. And he, uh, he just says it so simply and so well. There's a desire in the human heart for greatness in whatever your field is, right, the, that verse that Suzanne referenced last gathering in chapter 311, it says he's, God has placed eternity in our hearts. It's the God-shaped hole in our hearts. We want something that our earthly experience cannot provide. And this teacher, in this wise way he's exploring this, he's kind of saying either like this thing we have is an absurd, pointless twist in our experience, or maybe it's a plot by the devil to make us want something that doesn't exist. Or it was put there by God on purpose to point us to something that really does exist. But let's keep going. Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was already here long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Will anyone three to four generations down the line know your name? Do you know your great-great-grandparents' full name? Maybe. Somebody does, but the full name. Hmm. Hevel. It's Hevel. It's absurd. So why should we read this book? Or why listen to a sermon on it on a Sunday morning? Well, one, the first really good reason is because it's honest. Like, this is so honest about the troubles of life. It's so honest that uh, one of the greatest American novelists, Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick, I hope someone's read that. If you haven't, you should read it. But that author, that author called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. Right? More than anything else in the Bible, Ecclesiastes captures the futility and frustration of a fallen world. It's honest about the drudgery of work, the injustice of government, uh, the dissatisfaction of foolish, foolish pleasure, and the mind-numbing tedium of everyday life. In case you're not sure what I'm talking about, 
let me, let me give you an illustration. So you wake up on a Monday morning, hit the snooze a couple times maybe, uh, but you get out the door, you're slightly frustrated by the trains that are late or the road work in Malmö that has made it really difficult to drive to work. You get there, you sit through another department meeting that amazingly seems to be a repetition of the same meeting we had last week and the week before that. How is this possible? We never get anywhere. <clears throat> and you're frustrated by your boss who seems to not be able to really make a decision, right? What do you think? What do you think? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's keep thinking about it. Um, and you're like, is there anything new here? Like, are we getting anywhere? And you, you go to lunch with your coworkers. And you're like, what did you do this weekend? Oh, you know, about the same as last weekend. And yeah, um, finally, after lunch, you get a little time to do your own work, right? A little alone time. But instead of go for the harder thing that's waiting for you, you're like, let me just check my emails, right? So you open your inbox, and it's like 121 unread mess messages. Like, OK. Oh, sit here, click, and you're like one of those people that's got to get it down to zero before you can concentrate on anything else. So you're clicking, you're, okay, it's going down, it's going down. You get it down to zero, and then beep, beep. There comes another one and another one. Like, that's heavy. It's heavy. <laughs> it never ends, right? And before you know it, you're doing it again on Tuesday, but at least Monday's over, right? You're counting down to Friday now. And you got some plans to look forward to and a nice family day on Saturday. You're going to enjoy your kids whom you love very much, but you had no idea it would be this hard <laughs> to raise those little humans. And oh, your beautiful wife or your amazing husband. You just, <sighs> they've become your partner in home administration, right? And you send each other texts during the week on, oh, pick this up at the store. And don't forget, it's your day to pick up the kids at four. Does anyone, like, is this anyone's life or is this just my life? I mean, yeah, hello. <laughs> now it's Sunday, and you're, you're, you're here in church. Maybe you're a church person. You're serving on a team. You're serving on the welcome team or production team. Um, and you're okay, you're fixing it. And then you reflect a minute here on church. Have I, what have I been doing this week? Like, you feel like maybe you've missed the mark again, and you're not so sure God is around or, or like, are, am I doing this right? And then maybe a few hours later, you start to have this creeping low-grade anxiety because it's Sunday night, and Monday's tomorrow. <laughs> it's another departmental meeting. <laughs> the hamster wheel just keeps spinning and spinning and spinning. The teacher of Ecclesiastes would say, yes, that's right, and then you die. <laughs> Seriously, that's what he would say. Chapter 2 Verses 17 to 23, he says, So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave, it all, leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. 
What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too, it's meaningless. It's hevel. Now, imagine reading that passage every day on your way to work for a week. <laughs> That's what I did last week while I was preparing for this. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> then it actually happened to align with with uh, my last day at work. So after a week of reading this, I handed in my key and my computer. I said, here you go. <laughs> meaningless, it's meaningless. <laughs> no. <clears throat> One commentator writes, think of Ecclesiastes as the only book in the Bible written on a Monday morning, <laughs> right? Another says, Ecclesiastes is kind of like a back door that allows believers to have the sad and skeptical thoughts that we usually do not allow to enter the front door of our faith. Hmm. That's important. It's healthy even to know that the Bible gives us an outlet for an existential crisis. Right. It's one reason to study this book. It's honest about the troubles of life. Another reason to read this book It asks the biggest and hardest questions that a person can ask. Peter Kreeft, a philosopher alive today, says that Ecclesiastes is particularly important for us, children of modernity located in the West. It's because modern Western civilization is the first culture in the history of the world that does not have a claim to find an answer to the most important question of all, which is, why do we exist? Man, we're, we're living in the first, if it doesn't have a, an overarching answer for why are we here? What is the purpose of human life? That's the question Ecclesiastes is asking. Is the purpose to be happy, maybe? Maximize pleasure and minimize pain? I know a lot of people with that philosophy of life. Um, Many years ago, Adam and I were having lunch, dinner, something, with a friend and her boyfriend. And her parents had come from the US. They were Asian, an Asian American couple made this amazing spread of Korean food. It was awesome. We were there kind of as moral support um, because this dad was more or less there to interview the boyfriend, right? So it was a bit of a, a tense, atmosphere. Adam, being the most outgoing, talkative one in the whole group, is making a better impression on the dad than this girl's boyfriend. I'm like, Adam. (laughs) Um, And at some point, this pretty silent but sharp father, he asks this boyfriend, what is the purpose of life? Okay, imagine that boyfriend. He's like, (laughs) okay. He was not prepared, I'll tell you. But this was a test. It was 100% a test. So Adam and I are kind of holding our breath like, oh, buddy, what is he going to say? And this Swedish boyfriend says, to have fun? Wrong answer. <laughs> okay, that was the wrong answer. This, I mean, and the dad was just like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Whew. Well, let's look at what the teacher in Ecclesiastes says. He pursued fun and pleasure to the greatest degree. 
In chapter 2, the very beginning of chapter 2, he says, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. <laughs> Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And in all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. See, partly this teacher wants to say, learn from me. Okay, maybe you haven't reached the pinnacle of human pleasure, but I have. And it's not worth it. It's not worth it, ultimately. And it never comes to a conclusion. You saw that phrase, it's like chasing the wind. You can't catch it. You're always chasing, it's exhausting. If you're living for the weekends and vacations, or even for the house you're saving up for, and all the, lights, all the delights of the world, you will still come up empty at the end. So the teacher also pursues wisdom, knowledge, and admits elsewhere in the book that, okay, if you have to choose between pursuing wisdom or foolishness, yeah, it is generally better to pursue wisdom. But still, at the end of the day, it's hevel. We go back to chapter 1, verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. That's kind of like saying, we know something is missing, but we don't know what. What is lacking cannot be counted. I'm feeling something's missing, but I don't know. Mark Twain says, you don't know quite what it is you want, but it just barely makes your heart ache because you want it so. That's what the teacher is getting at here. Verse 16, he says, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. The more you know, the heavier existence becomes. 
That's why we have that other saying, ignorance is bliss, yeah? The more you know, the heavier existence becomes, not lighter. Human wisdom is also limited in scope. The teacher knows this. Uh, French mathematician and physicist uh, Pascal, you know him? He invented the first calculator. Um, if you were in school at any point, you probably learned the theory of probability. That's Pascal. Well, he was around during the 17th century. This is the age of enlightenment in France. This is, re this is reason's heyday, right? The, uh, the main idea of the day was, you know, we don't need God because human reason is going to take us everywhere we need to go. If we just apply ourselves to human knowledge and wisdom, man, humanity is just going to be on a steady slope of progress upward. But Pascal, living in this time, brilliant man, he realized something that sounds a little bit like Ecclesiastes. He says, reason's last step is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things which are beyond it. It's limited. Human reason is limited, but like pleasure and even work sometimes, we seek it because each small gain scratches an itch. I think of all the professors I worked with at the university who are really powered by, oh, he's going to know a little bit more. And it's all, I mean, that's awesome. We need people like that who are seeking to understand the workings of the world. But man, it can become a little bit like this, I think. We scratch another itch, scratch another itch, keep striving, keep striving. The teacher knows that ache we're striving to fill. But sometimes I wonder if we're not totally aware of that ache ourselves. As Matthew mentioned during his service lead, we're distracted. That's why we need to sing that song, no distractions. But we are distracted with these very things, with our work and our pleasure. And we're asleep to this deep, soul-thirsting longing, right? We're also so comfortable. Like compared to anyone else in history, we're so comfortable. My family used to play practical jokes on each other uh, growing up. And one thing we would do is one of us would be taking a really warm shower, and another one would come in with ice water, sneak in there and throw the ice water over the curtain. <laughs> ah! mm. That's kind of like what Ecclesiastes is. It's like throwing the ice water while you're in the middle of your warm shower. <laughs> but I wonder, though, if this is a better way into the gospel for our time and place, for our cultural moment. You know, for so many people, to hear that Christ died for your sins, it just, it's like a different language. Like, what? Sin? Like, uh, does not compute. Like, that feels outdated to a lot of people, right, to the modern mind. But Ecclesiastes, wow, that feels relevant. Meaningless, yeah, I have felt that. Life feels meaningless to me. And so I wonder, where is God in all this? What, did the, what does the teacher say about God? Remember, his perspective is under the sun. But he never abandons his belief in God. He certainly is, though, vexed at times that God has apparent oversight of all this hevel going on down here. It's vexing. But while it's true that this teacher takes a somber view of life, never flinching from its complexities and confusions, it's equally true that he's got a solid hope in the ultimate goodness of God. 
And perhaps this is his point all along. He wants us to feel the futility of everything earthly so that by the end, we're on our knees in humility, ready to put our hope in the everlasting God. It's this big um, divide between the earthly and the everlasting. That's, of course, different from the cultural response today. You might get that same analysis, like my coworker of the modern mind can agree. Yeah, it's absurd. It's pointless. Other places in this book, he's, he's vexed over the fact that good people die too early and evil people sometimes get to live long lives that seem amazing. What's the point of that? That's heaven. And, you know, your cat dies, and so you also die. You know, and he's, he's kind of vexed by the problem of death. I think whoever you are, you can relate to that and even agree with that. But where the modern person would say, that's my analysis, and therefore there must not be a God. The teacher in Ecclesiastes says, and therefore I better put my hope in God. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating turn. Sometimes even as a Christian, we can become disenchanted with God because we're living down here in heaven. We can feel these things and we're like, well, I invited, I quote, invited Jesus into my life. I thought my life wouldn't look like this anymore. And the teacher here, important thing to learn, well, he's adjusting our expectations. He pops the bubble of the myth of religious fulfillment. Like it's not the religious stuff that's going to fulfill you it's a hard lesson for some, but we live under the sun, and our perspective is so hopelessly limited. We're just grasping at smoke. But let's go to chapter 12. So I, I skipped a bunch of chapters for your own perusing. Chapter 12 at the very end, verses 9 and 14, the conclusion of it all. Not only was the teacher wise, he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs, searched to find just the right words, and he wrote what was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. So this voice is like, yeah, it hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> hurts a little bit, but it's for our own good, like the nails at the end of a shepherd's cane that would help the sheep stay in line. But be warned of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. He's like, I know this is hard. You don't want to read this every day. <laughs> but now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Hmm. It's such a contrast to our earthly perspective that says nothing matters, everything is trivial and boring. And he says, well, with a heavenly perspective, actually everything matters. Every hidden thing will be judged, will be accounted for in the end. Now maybe you can see that quote I opened with, you have to lose hope in everything that deceives before you can be prepared to hope in what does not deceive. Interestingly enough, there are some pieces of joy in this book, kind of surprising joy, and they're even sweeter because of the tone of the book. 
The teacher seems to say in some parts that once we've got God, once we're fearing God, we're trusting God, we're seeking God, we're actually released to enjoy life as it is. Like when we don't expect ultimate gain and pleasure from our vacations, from our work, etc., then we can actually enjoy the little gifts we get in the midst of all this absurdity as good gifts from God. At one point, he says, go eat your food with gladness, drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has approved what you do, and enjoy your wife too. Do that this summer, but don't put expectations on those things that they can't fulfill, right? That's the point. And the other point he wants you to remember is even when we don't have those gifts to enjoy because our existence is heavy, we fear God even still. In other words, when times are good, follow Jesus. When times are bad, follow Jesus. That's right. And Jesus isn't here to give you good times. That's that myth of religious fulfillment. Jesus is not here to give you good times. Paul in the New Testament would surely agree. But he is here to give you his presence. Right? No other time and place in history would that statement sound a little bit controversial or harsh. Like I say that and sometimes people are like, ooh, that doesn't sound good. No other Christians in the history of the Christian church would, I mean, it would have sounded weird to even have to formulate that. Jesus isn't here to give you good times. Some of us are stuck in our own tunnel vision. We're only after the good times, and we need the teacher of Ecclesiastes to pop our bubbles. Mm. There's something about this realization, about the absurdity of life, that I think makes communion, which we're going to prepare to take now, all the sweeter. We recognize that Jesus came into our earthly existence with heavenly perspective. And he faced all the frustrating futility of life head on. Man, Jesus, he was a realist about humanity and human nature. It's amazing to me when Christians get called anything else but a realist. The Bible, that's the most honest book about human experience and, and human nature. But Jesus came in. And he took all of life's hevel, as Ecclesiastes would put it, into himself on the cross. Why? Because it was never meant to be this way. Right? Rome, I think it's in Romans 8. All this frustration, this futility, it's a result of sin that's entered the world. It wasn't meant to be this way. Under the sun, everything is meaningless. But with the sun, S-O-N, nothing is. Some may be here today feeling like you've lost hope in everything under the sun. Like this, this text resonates with you. But maybe you're still there. You haven't yet fully explored the hope that does not deceive. Perhaps you haven't fully experienced the tangible presence of Jesus. You know, that mathematician Pascal I mentioned earlier, he had some kind of amazing full-on experience with Jesus and we know this because he scribbled on a piece of parchment. He said, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, fire. God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, and not of the philosophers and savants. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. He scribbled that 
in the age of enlightenment in France and sewed it into his jacket, walked around with that for the last eight years of his life. You know, I want that kind of experience for you today. Not a good time. His presence. Perhaps you haven't lost hope in everything yet, but you are chasing the answers in work. Like, work is everything to you. You're, you're making a name for yourself. You want to know and understand the world. And that could be a gift from God. That, that it could be a gift if you would put it in its right place. But right now, it's just distracting you from the desire you can't really satisfy. As C.S. Lewis writes, and the shettle, you can come up, give us a little guitar. C.S. Lewis writes, for the Christian, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. He goes on to say that all those earthly desires are also made to point us to that other world. So as we prepare to take communion, I want to invite us to repent of the times when we have made earthly things into something they were never meant to be. All those times when we're trying to get infinite meaning out of finite things. We need to just say, I'm sorry, Lord. You're, you're the king of my life. You're the Lord of my life. And then we can humbly take communion and we think about Jesus, the home for all our longings, his body and his blood shed for you and me that we might eat and drink and be satisfied. As I pray, you can line up here and, and take the bread and the cup. After I pray, then you'll have a moment with God. Repent of things you need to repent of, and then you're welcome to take the cup and the bread at your seat or up here. And then we'll go back into a time of worship. Lord, we come to you humbly this morning. We ask you to enlighten our eyes, Lord. Show us the meaninglessness of all the stuff we chase, Lord the absurdity of life. But God, I thank you because that drive to search, the drive to wring out everything we can from life is put there by you. And Lord, I pray that we would turn to you today. We would give you today that desire and that longing for fulfillment and satisfaction, Lord. Forgive me, God. Forgive me when I have put earthly things, material things, physical things, the things in my life, forgive me when I've put them in a place they were never meant to be, when I've made them an idol, when I've placed my value in those things, Lord. You are king in my life, Father. You are the Lord of my life. I pray, Lord, that as we 
take communion, we would not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. When we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Thank you, Lord.